0: The Tom Woods Show, episode 2097. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Hey, everybody. I'm giving away three free courses from my liberty classroom. One of them is ex-Marxist Michael Rechtenwald teaching about critical theory so you can understand leftism and fight it better, as well as our course on How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America and the History of the Conservative and Libertarian Movements. Check it out at threefreecourses.com. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here, joined once again by our old friend, Aguinas Zietelman, who is the author now of a book called The Power of Capitalism, A Journey Through Recent History Across Five Continents. Now, after my conversation with Dr. Ziedelman on this topic. I have something I want to tell you about, which if you're on my mailing list, which I hope by now you are, which you can do at tomwoods.com, you already know about. But if you don't, you're going to want to hear this. So don't turn off your set, as they used to say when we're done talking. Dr. Ziedelman, welcome back to the show. Hello. Nice to be back. Thank you for inviting me again. Look, here's the math. I'll tell you the math behind this. I have to produce five episodes a week, and you produce one book per year. So you are (laughs) a natural candidate for The Tom Woods Show, (laughs) okay? (laughs) But you produce good books. These are good books. And I'm holding it in my hand right now, The Power of Capitalism, A Journey Through Recent History Across Five Continents. I instantly flipped ahead to chapter 10 right away, which is Why Intellectuals Don't Like Capitalism, because I am interested in other people's theories about this. Then my second chapter was chapter eight, Economic Freedom Increases Human Welfare, because I'm interested in that. I'm interested in things that most people miss, which most people think the world is getting worse and worse when it's actually getting better and better. I find that really interesting. And then I looked at the various examples that you give, like like China, North and South Korea, South America, Sweden, and so on and on. It's a very, very thorough book because it also has the chapter, the necessary chapter about Sweden, and isn't Sweden a counterexample? You've handled all of that. So with a book like this, part of me wants to go right to chapter 10, but let's actually start with chapter eight, if you don't mind, which is Economic Freedom Increases Human Welfare. There are people who would dispute that. And yet I think most of the people disputing it don't actually know the statistics about, well, almost any, any measure of human welfare you might care to list. I don't think they're aware of the actual numbers. So what are your comments on
1: that? Yes, sir, thank you for this. I think the most important thing that everyone should know, before capitalism, so 200 years ago, of the worldwide population was living in extreme poverty, 90%. Today, it's less than 10%. And only if you have this number. I think it's great. It's amazing. Of course, 10% is too much. But here's the point in my book. Anti-capitalists, they have a tendency to compare their utopian visions of a so-called just society with reality. And it's no surprise that reality comes off very poorly. And I think, in my opinion, this is absolutely unfair. It's, it's not fair to compare an abstract ideal with reality. For me, it's like comparing your, your romantic relationship with an idealized vision of perfect love in a chiclet novel instead of your friends' real life relationships. And this is what uh, anti capitalists do. And so, When I wrote the book, the most important decision was for me to compare things that you can compare. For example, East Germany, West Germany, North Korea, South Korea, Chile, Venezuela, or China in the time of Mao Zedong, and then China after the capitalist reforms. And I think this is the approach and if you read the book you see it's a book not with a lot of theory and i think this is a difference between this book and other pro capitalist book it's not so much about theory but you can find a lot of facts so and i think this is important i don't like to discuss so much about theories i just i like to discuss about facts
0: well indeed so suppose you come across a person of goodwill not somebody with an ax to grind, but a person of goodwill who genuinely wants to know the truth and has heard that capitalism increases poverty and exploitation and all the other complaints. It despoils the natural environment. It inculcates in us a short-term orientation because we think only about profits and not about long-term concerns. How do you respond? I respond with the facts. For example, let's speak about climate
1: change. Then I give you some fact, because, you know, I live here in Germany and people say capitalism is to blame for climate change and environmental problems. But I will tell you one of the world's biggest climate killers was, in fact, countries country that had abolished capitalism. East Germany, in 1989, East Germany emitted more than three times as much carbon dioxide for each unit of GDP than the Federal Republic, West Germany. So there are a lot of similar numbers. Or I will give you another fact that a lot of people don't know. I ask often young people, what do you guess how many people had a telephone? I don't speak about a cell phone, but landline in 1989 in East and West Germany. I can tell you, in East Germany, it was 16%, 16, mainly party members. In West Germany, it was 99%. Or another fact about housing. I, I know young people, they care a lot about, about housing problems. But I tell you, in 1989, 65% of all apartments in East Germany, they were still heated with coal stoves and 24% had no toilet. Think about this, no toilet, 24%, 18% lacked a bathroom. And this is not 100 years ago, but this was the end of socialism in 1989. And so if I discuss, you see, I like to discuss with facts. And then I will give you another thing that is, for me, very important. This is chapter one. You mentioned it about China. Of course, China is not a capitalist country. But what a lot of people don't know, end of 50s. 45 million people died as a result of the biggest socialist experiment in history, the so-called Great Leap Forward from Mao Zedong. And I write in detail about this experiment. And when I have my lectures all over the world, I ask young people, who of you had heard at school about this biggest socialist experiment, the Great Leap Forward? Almost no one had heard about it. And I think this is so crazy. They tell them at school about all the so-called evils of capitalism, but they don't tell them about the biggest social experiment with 45 million people died. And then another very important fact, you know, in 1981, 88% of the people in China were living in extreme poverty. 88%! Today it's less than 1%. This happened never before in history. And the reason is very easy. Deng Xiaoping started to introduce market economy, private property. And this is the whole story of this progress in China. And in the West, a lot of people think or want to tell you China was so successful because they have this planned economy and the big role of the state. Forget it. I've been in China and I spoke with a libertarian economist. Chang Wei from uh, Beijing University, and he repeated again and again, our economic success was not because of the state, but in spite of the state. And he had a lot of research to prove this fact, and you find some of this in my book. So you see, there are so many facts that prove that capitalism is even a better system. Maybe not in theory, but in reality, if you look at
0: history. Well, as your book shows in case after case the socialist alternative leads to disaster and material deprivation at the very least, and that the market economy generates wealth that does indeed spread throughout the society. Now, given that you can show this with particular effectiveness in the case of East and West Germany and North and South Korea, because the populations are so similar, the question then arises, why is there so much opposition? to the market economy, but particularly among intellectuals. Why is that the case? And you wrestled with that in that chapter 10 that I, I raced to, and you, you considered the explanation given by Joseph Schumpeter, but are not entirely convinced. Where do you think the hostility is coming from?
1: So first of all, thank you for this question. It's the most important question. And I'm a little bit proud about this chapter 10 because the first review of this book was written by Madsen Piri from Adam's president from Adam Smith Institute. I didn't know him at this time. And this Madsen Piri, you know, he he knew all Maggie Thatcher, he knew Hayek and all these libertarians. And he wrote in his, he praised this chapter and said that I had, I did much more than Hayek did about this topic. And, you know, I was very proud to read it. So let's, Let's start the very complicated questions to give some answers, because there is not a single answer. There are several factors. Let's start with this. So, many intellectuals fail to understand the nature of capitalism as an economic order that emerged and grows spontaneously. Now, this is very important to understand. Unlike socialism, capitalism isn't a school of thought imposed on reality. But capitalism has grown historically in much the same way as languages have developed over time as a result of spontaneous and uncontrolled processes. And to give you an example, I think you know Esperanto, this language that was invented uh, 150 years ago. This is a planned language. And it has now been around for over 130 years, but without gaining anything like the global acceptance its inventors were hoping for. And socialism shares some of the characteristics of a planned language in that it is a system devised by intellectuals. And of course, for socialism, you need intellectuals. This was something that Lenin wrote in his book, Uh, What Has to Be Done, that the real source of uh, socialism is not the workers' movement, but these are the intellectuals. And so far, for socialism, intellectuals are very important, but they are not important so much for capitalism. This is one point. And the other point is, uh, you have to realize that there are two competing elites. These are the businessmen on the one hand, and the intellectuals on the other hand. And now, maybe it's a little bit complicated, but I have to make a point: how entrepreneurs learn and how intellectuals learn. In psychology, we distinguish between explicit knowledge and implicit knowledge. So, explicit knowledge means book wisdom, what you learn at school, reading books, and, and implicit knowledge is uh, acquired via implicit learning. It means, you know, the learning by doings. This is the way entrepreneurs learn, and uh, the British philosopher Michael Polanyi called it, Tacit knowledge. You can call it also intuition or gut feeling. And this is very important for entrepreneurs. You know, I wrote my second doctoral dissertation about the wealth elite and I conducted interviews with 45 super rich people, most of them entrepreneurs. And I learned that academic knowledge is not so important for them to read books or what they learned at a university. They have another way to learn. And this is what intellectuals don't understand. You know, I have a background from an academic family. And in this value system, it seems those who read most books should be on the top, you know, and then if there's an intellectual and he meets maybe his former classmate from school who wasn't so good at school, maybe he had only high school, he never studied his friend, and now he makes much more money because he had a great business idea, what was important for a lot of consumers, and then he doesn't understand it because he sees this former classmate from me who didn't read as much books as I did, he earns now more money, he has the better house, the bigger car, and what is the worst thing, even the prettier wife yes and, and then he says this is unfair, so markets doesn't work you see because if markets would work then I would be at the top because I read more books. And this is only because they they don't understand that there are different forms of learning. And of course, both of us, it's important. There's what we call explicit learning at school, at university, it is important. But there's another way of learning that is in a way, especially for entrepreneurs, much more important.
0: And this is what intellectuals don't understand. I think some of them, Some intellectuals won't admit it openly, but they are contemptuous of the masses. And now you have capitalism, which is a system in which you become rich by catering to and serving the masses. Yes. yes. So, by definition, the system is vulgar to them. That's one thing. Secondly, they consider themselves, by virtue of their university education, entitled to run society, and that we should be eagerly awaiting their latest pronouncement. But we're not. And so I believe they resent that. I I think there are intellectual errors involved here in the way they look at the market economy. But I think there's something much more base at work. I think it's a hatred. I think a lot of them are people who genuinely hate bourgeois values. And bourgeois values are what uphold the market system. I really feel like it's not simply if only I understood better the way this system worked, maybe I might support it. I think it's more a lust to destroy. I wish I could believe it were something more innocent than that. No, but I think you're right. And even if you look in the history
1: of 20th century, there were so many intellectuals who admired Stalin, admired Mao, not only a few. There were so many of them during the Cultural Revolution in, in China and in the time of Stalin. And I think it's correct. You you call it the the hatred against the bourgeoisie, the hatred against entrepreneurs. And so they were so much in favor of even the worst dictators. And, you know, the problem is if we speak now about North Korea or if we speak about East Germany, they will tell you, please don't come in with this. This is not what we like. We want something different. But the problem is, in the 20th century, when in the, in the time from Soviet Union, from Stalin and from Mao, they admired it. And only after it failed, then they tell you always, oh, sorry, this wasn't real socialism. But next time it will work. And I have this one chapter about Venezuela. This was the same. It was only now 20 years ago when Hugo Chavez came to power. And they were so enthusiastic about it, intellectuals. I have a lot of quotes from leading intellectuals who were so fascinated by Hugo Chávez. They called it the, the socialism of 21st century and all this stuff. And we know what happened now, that it was a total disaster like every other socialist experiment in history. I think the highest inflation rate in the world and 10% flat. Venezuela, a lot of starvation people have uh, are hungry there in Venezuela. But now they tell you, no, no, this wasn't real socialism. But next time we know how it will work. And I think this is a little bit crazy. If in 100 years, I think there were at least 24 socialist experiments, 24 in 100 years, and they all failed without any exception. But the intellectuals tell you, okay, maybe we have to have a slight modification in the recipe to do something a little bit different, but they don't understand that it's the idea behind it that is wrong. So I don't like to discuss, you know, if someone comes to me and said, Here, I have a new theory, how society should work. I say, I refuse it. I don't discuss with you about theory, I discuss about facts about history, like I do it in my books, and not about theory. They like very much to discuss about theory. They don't like to discuss about facts. And I tell you one thing, socialism looks always
0: good on paper, but not when the paper is a history book. Right, exactly. That's exactly it. Hey, folks, I want to take just a minute to tell you a story, the story of a friend of mine named Mike, who lost his job during COVID and had to figure out what he was gonna do with his life after that. And well, what do you know? He'd been listening to me for a while and he'd been listening to me talk about e-commerce and stuff like that. So he started his own business and his own little store. But the product he has is so great. I have one of them myself. They're beautiful wooden watches. And when he said that he made watches out of wood, I thought, well, surely you don't mean the strap is made out of wood, but the strap is made out of wood. And it's absolutely gorgeous. It's a beautiful kind of unusual gift item to get anybody. Anybody would be stunned by one of these. They're affordable and yet they look like they cost you a fortune. And by the way, when I say they're a great gift, they can be a great gift for yourself. And seeing that Mike is a friend of Old Woods, you can be sure that this is a libertarian-owned small business. It's Axehead Watchmakers. So A X E H E A D W A T C H dot com. Axehead Watch. Com. And guess what? If you use promo code WOODS, you can take 25% off a watch. In terms of the interior of the watch, they use the same Japanese Miyota movements that are used in citizen and movement watches. So let me recap. Great guy, lost his job through no fault of his own, picked himself back up, created an amazing, beautiful product that will make any gift recipient of yours happy, including yourself, and you get 25% off when you use code WOODS. So... What are you waiting for? Head to axeheadwatch.com. That's A-X-E headwatch.com. I'm thinking about your chapter where you talk about Chile and Venezuela, and particularly because Chile, of course, had some free market reforms and did very well. But then just this year, as you know, they elected a, I think you could say, an extreme leftist, certainly the most left-wing president they've had in a very long time. And... Incidentally, as I scroll through the various headlines about this, they're all either neutral to positive, that this new president is sworn in to herald a new era. It's a historic shift. He's the youngest president. He's breaking new ground. He's getting to work remaking Chile. Now, imagine if somebody who were more on the right and who favored market reforms were elected. Would we get these neutral to positive headlines about it's a new era and and we're going to- yeah. Absolutely not. And
1: per accident, I spoke this morning with someone from Chile a longer time, what, what happened there, because I will go to Chile in May and I will go to Argentina and to Brazil to speak there about my book. And I spoke with her. And I think what happened there in Chile, you see it in a lot of countries. If you compare Chile with other countries in Latin America, Chile did so much better not only if you compare it with Venezuela, but also with other countries. But at one point, people forget why they were successful. They forget it. It happens also in Germany, where I live. People forget why they were successful. I think it's even in the United States. A lot of people forget what are the roots of our economic success that is free enterprise and all this. And then. I thought I was in South Korea because I had some lectures. This book was published in South Korea. It was even uh, number one in a nonfiction bestseller there. And I spoke with them. and Everywhere the same problem. People forget. I, I will give you maybe a little funny example. Imagine there's someone who's very fat, speak about 150 kilos. And then he's starting diet. He's losing fat. Maybe in the end, he has only 70 or 80 kilos, lost a lot of fat two years later. And then he forgot why he became slim. And he said, oh, I have a good body. Why shouldn't I eat some pizza? Why shouldn't I eat some chocolate and all this stuff? And he started to eat a lot of you know pizza, chocolate, and so. And of course, nothing will happen in the next day. It's not this way that you wake up next day and you gain 80 kilos again. But of course, it will happen step by step. And this is the same. He forgot why he became slim. He forgot that he became only slim because he stopped eating too much pizza. He stopped eating too much chocolate, stopped drinking too much beer. And this is what happens also with countries sometimes. They are economically successful. And then they forget what's the reason. And then they call for the state and they they call for the social justice, what they call social justice, perfect uh, society. And I don't know what will happen in Chile. Some of them call him a new Allende. But what they don't know, that Allende, uh, that it was economically a
0: total disaster what happened there in Chile. So they're going to get a taste of it, I guess, soon enough. It's interesting that you would say that people forget why they succeeded. I agree, and that was really what I was driving at, that how is it possible that they had this success and they apparently don't know what the cause of it was? That's very interesting to me. And of course, it also leads to, I think, some very, very destructive ways of thinking that, for example, why, if you were a Chilean who had no idea why your country was doing better than most on the continent, then you might be inclined to think, well, I guess Chileans must just be better than Venezuelans. We must just be better. Instead of thinking there may be institutional reasons yes. for why one society is better than another. If you don't appreciate that, then you could easily fall into a superiority complex over other people, that it must just yeah, be yeah. that my people are better.
1: Yes, but I think if you speak about Chile, Uh, You know, I spoke this morning with someone, as mentioned, and I think there's another reason with the elections. So because there was the alternative between this leftist candidate and another one that was seen by a lot of people as extreme right wing. And for example, I know I have a friend from Chile, and she's not leftist, absolutely not. In a lot of things, she thinks similar as you and me. And then she told me, to be honest, this time, I elected the leftist candidate, and I asked, why did you do it? <laughs> I think you were not leftist. Yes, but because the other one was so extreme right, and so I couldn't elect him. I think, so this was another thing. I don't know whether the other candidate was in reality so much right. I don't know enough about it, but I think this was a reason for some people why they, in the end, made the decision for this leftist candidate, and of course, this leftist people, they tell you always, before they are elected, that they are not so extreme, that they're kind of moderate. This is interesting. If you read in my chapter about Venezuela, even Hugo Chavez, because before he was elected, he said, I'm a Tony Blair of the Caribbean. You know, Tony player was this very moderate uh, social democrat in the UK, and he was uh, absolutely you no know, extremist. and. I think it's a kind of fraud what they do. They, before they get elected, they tell people, oh, I'm more moderate. I'm not so extreme. But then it starts. That something that you can learn from Venezuela. They start with their fight, with their war against uh, private property. And they think the state is a solution for everything. They start with nationalization and all this stuff. And then it becomes more extreme and extreme. And this is what you
0: can see what, what happens now in Venezuela. I'm a big, big fan of this book, The Power of Capitalism, because you've got, as I say, the key chapters that answer the questions people need to get answers to, which is, if this system is so good, how come all the influential people criticize it all the time? And secondly, has it been good or bad on net for human welfare? That's all addressed. But then the specifics, so from China to Africa, to Central Europe, to the UK and the United States, to Sweden, South America, all the information you need, all the recent history is all in here. And I promise you that if you're in an argument with people about this, none of them are going to know anything. I just, I promise you, none of them are going to know anything. But if you read this, you're going to know more than you need to at least make people think, or at least make people think they better not try to argue this with you anymore. So, Tom, th- th- th-
1: thank you very much for this. But I tell you something. When I wrote this book, I didn't expect to convince hardcore anti capitalists because usually they don't read books like this. They prefer if I tell them, I give you book number 26, Why Capitalism is Evil. They will say, Oh, I want to have it, book number 26, Why Capitalism is Evil. But when I tell them, I give you one book with, you know, some pro capitalist argument, no, I won't read it. I won't read such a book. But I wrote this book for other people. And I think there are a lot of people. And there are people who maybe in an emotional way, they are more pro-market economy. They are more pro-entrepreneurship and they don't like socialism, but they don't have the facts. They don't have the facts. And then if they have a discussion with this anti-capitalist. And, you know, a lot of anti-capitalists don't work so much. So they have a lot of time to read books all over the day. And so they have a lot of all their theories and their arguments. Then if they start to discuss for them, they don't have the facts. And this is my target group. These are the people I I write my books to give them the facts if they discuss with the anti-capitalists. But, okay, this was my idea. But now here in Germany, the book was very successful. And on Amazon, there are 320 reviews. And I I read these reviews from people on Amazon. And what I was surprised, there were even some of the readers who wrote, before I read the book, I was pretty much anti-capitalist and socialist. But now I read the book and it convinced me. This is not what I expected, but of course, it was a positive surprise. And so, Tom, I will ask you and Maybe there are some in the audience who read the book or hopefully will read the book. If you read it, please do me a favor, write also a review on Amazon, because I saw, I think in the United States, there are only 10 reviews compared with 320 in uh, Germany. And so I think there's a lot to do, and especially because I had another research about capitalism survey and about the attitude toward capitalism. And I think you know it as well. In America, we have a problem. The older ones in my age, older than 60, most of them, I think they are more pro-capitalist and pro-entrepreneurship. But younger people, younger than 30, there are a lot of anti-capitalists because they learn it at school. They learn it at university. They don't tell them all these facts that you have in my book. No, they tell them all over the time about the evils of capitalism and that capitalism is to blame for everything, for all bad things in the world, for hunger, for climate change, for inequality, for racism, fascism, colonialism, and whatever, even if you have psychological problems of course, capitalism is to blame for it. And even if you're not successful in life, of course, capitalism is to blame for it. And this is what they're told in schools and university. And so this is the reason why I think it's so important to spread this message even in the United States, because otherwise I'm skeptical when when the young people there in the United States are so anti-capitalist. I think we have to do something. And if I can help a little bit, as a German historian, then uh, I will come to the United States and to some universities and I'm very curious about the discussions that I will have about the topic. And in the end, I will tell you something. I'm proud to be pro-capitalist. There are some people who say, oh, I know capitalism is not so good. I know it's not the best system, but other systems are worse than this. This is not the attitude, how you can defend capitalism. no. If I have my lectures, I have a T-shirt. On this T-shirt, you can see it on the internet, there's, I love capitalists" with a heart. And I think even left young people, they accept me. They accept because they see, okay, I'm proud to be pro-capitalist. I'm not like, you know, some of these conservative people, very defensive. Yeah, I know it's not the best system, but, and so, this is not the right attitude. I told you about a system where that is responsible, that in the last 200 years, the rate of poverty was from 90% to now less than 10%. And I think there's no reason to to be ashamed to be a
0: pro-capitalist. Agreed completely. And let me say one final thing. If you have a friend, and just a dear friend, you can't imagine not being friends, but you look at the world differently on questions like this. And Maybe that's a friend who would never, ever read a book like uh, Dr. Ziedelman's book here. I've often recommended making a deal with that person and saying, if you read a book that I recommend, I will read a book that you recommend and then we can discuss it. That's good. Yeah, because then maybe they'll feel, well, they really want you to read their book. So, okay, they'll <laughs> go to the trouble of reading yours and maybe something good comes of it. Trump, this is great. This is, this is great advice. But I tell you something, I read a lot of books from
1: anti-capitalists, a lot. I read, I think, even more than pro-capitalist book. I read, I read books from anti-capitalists. And I tell you a funny thing in the end. I had a discussion in Germany with a leading anti-capitalist journalist. She's very left and very anti-capitalist. And we had a discussion. And then she told me about this book. It was about this book, Power of Capitalism. She said... In the bibliography, there's one book about Japan missing. And I told her, okay, that's not a surprise. This book, there is no chapter about Japan. But I saw your book and she wrote a book about economic theory in 20th century. And then I told her something. I saw in your bibliography, you had 13 books by Marx, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and zero from Hayek and zero from Mises. But this is a book about economic theory in 20th century. And I think this is crazy. With 13 books from Marx and Engels, that she said, Yes, but I can explain it to you. She told me, Hayek, he's not an economist, he's a philosopher. And so this is the reason why I don't have it in my what? book. And I Yes, yes. Then I asked her, but maybe you will tell the audience what Hayek got the the, the Nobel Award for, you know, for economy. And I asked that if you use this argument, you shouldn't quote all these 13 Karl Marx books, because Karl Marx was not an economist, he was also a philosopher. So sometimes
0: it's it's funny. Well, I think it's because most people are more aware of Hayek's more philosophical works than they are of, of his economic works, to the point where they may actually think he was not an economist. I mean, he did, after all, teach in the School of Social Thought at the University of Chicago rather than economics. So maybe they're not even aware. What was prices and production about? What was the pure theory of capital about? Were those philosophical works? (laughs) Those are extremely dense works of economics. But your idea is great, Tom. I love it. I will tell people, okay, uh, you can
1: recommend me one of your books and I will read it because I like to read books from people with other opinions. I, I like to read it. It's boring if you read all over the day only books from people who have the same opinion as you. It's as boring as to discuss only with people who think of the same way. But um, this is the problem with a lot of, you know, today, I don't have to tell you, I think it's American universities with this cancel culture. And so that there are a lot of people who don't like to discuss other
0: ideas they prefer to cancel other ideas that is the problem that we face but i think our side of things yeah it's true that of course i look at the world a certain way and i i bring a certain way of thinking to the things i read but i don't want people who disagree with me to have their lives ruined necessarily i I don't wanna do anything to discourage people from speaking, and that's more than I can say for some of the folks on the other side. Well, let me recommend the book we've been discussing today, which of course is The Power of Capitalism, A Journey Through Recent History Across Five Continents, linked on our show notes page, tomwoods.com slash 2097. I hope we can have another, just you can start writing your books even more frequently than you have been. We can have (laughs) another conversation again soon. Yes, I would appreciate. Tom, thank you very much for the time
1: today. I told you at the beginning, I have just my day 11 with COVID,
0: but this was a great discussion with you. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate you being willing to do it while not being 100%. You sounded 100% to me. You sounded outstanding. So uh, anyway, I hope uh, you have a continued recovery and thank you again. Thank you very much. Have a great day, Tom, and thank you for helping me. All right, everybody, here's what I wanted to tell you. For five and a half years, Harry's Razors has been a big sponsor of the Tom Woods Show. In fact, I've called them the official razor of the Tom Woods Show, somewhat jokingly, but I love their product, and the razor plus the shave gel just gives me an excellent result. But we're entering into a kind of anarchy here, folks, a world in which the Tom Woods Show has no official razor because I've dropped them. I think you all know about all the woke stuff coming out of Harry's and I was wondering if maybe that would change and it's just getting worse. So you may have heard about what the Daily Wire is doing. They're literally launching a competitor to Harry's. And I'm using the word literally appropriately in this case because some people thought Jeremy's Razors was a joke. It's not a joke. They wouldn't be taking <laughs> they wouldn't be taking people's money for pre-orders if it were a joke. They actually are starting their own razor company just saying, we've had it, enough's enough. And their motto is, shut up and shave, which I like. Now, I'm not saying that the official razor of the Tom Wood Show will be Jeremy's. I haven't talked to those people and I haven't tested their product or anything. I'm just letting you know before you email me and say, hey, did you see this thing with Jeremy's razors? Yes, I did. And it's brilliantly done. Within a week, they had 15 million views on their video. So they are tapping into something real, So they're not trying to be priests or philosophers or censors. They're just trying to be razor salesmen. Can you believe that, how old-fashioned that is? They just want to sell you a razor. Whereas Harry's wants to hector you, and they obviously hate the people who listen to Daily Wire podcasts. And so if they don't like the Daily Wire, they're really not going to like the Tom Woods show once, because they... make a long story short, somebody on Twitter with a handful of followers said, hey, look at this old podcast from four years ago over the Daily Wire. Are you sure you want to advertise with them? And Harry's immediately folded and threw a longtime sponsor under the bus, which they'd been happy to take the money of those customers. No problem. They've been happy to take those people's money. But as soon as they were called on it, instead of, I don't know, just ignoring somebody with literally two Twitter followers, you know, they did what every company feels obligated to do these days, which is to beat their breasts and, oh, we're so sorry, and we're going to be reexamining our sponsors. Well, if they reexamine the Tom Woods show, you know, so I'm quitting before they can fire me, more or less. But they told me last year that I am one of, by far, one of the longest lasting advertising outlets for Harry's Razors, that normally an audience gets saturated and they move on to some other audience. But they've stuck with me deliberately for five and a half years because I just keep on delivering for them. But I just can't do it anymore. Yes, it was nice getting the money. It was nice getting the money, but there are some things in this world that are more important than money. And I have the support of the people who listen to this program. So I don't have to worry about some razor company. So I've just decided, and by the way, what I love about um, the Jeremy's Razors alternative, they've put billboard style advertisements right across from Harry's headquarters. Ads that say, I hate harrys.com. It's just brilliant, brilliant. There's never, ever any pushback against people like this, never. Or it's always begging and pleading, oh, I hope you'll still come back and advertise with us. And, you know, I have to hand it to the Daily Wire people. They just said, we're not doing that. We're not acting like losers anymore. Forget it. And you want to take our money, but crap all over us? Not happening anymore. Just not happening. So we're going to start our own company. That's great, we need way, way more of that, but the point for right now immediately is that there presently there is no official razor of the Tom Woods Show any longer. We will see how things develop in the coming months, and perhaps I will have a happy razor announcement for you, but I don't need those people, and I don't really want to be involved with people who can't stand the sight of me or you so. If you do like The Tom Woods Show, well, you know, don't make me be funded by some crap company that can't stand you. You know, support The Tom Woods Show if you think it's worth something. Five bucks a month means you think each episode is worth 25 cents. If you think that's a fair deal, then head to supportinglisteners.com and you'll see that in return, I give you a lot of really nice goodies, which a guy who's been in content creation for as long as I have has in abundance. And so I give you lots of things as a thank you